You're listening to the Based on History podcast. All units, Irene. I say again, Irene. And we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time. And we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. You tell him I'm coming. And hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you're here? Hello, and welcome back to Based on History Podcast. I'm your host, John Nydick, as always, and welcome to the second Based on History Mini. This episode is going to be in relation to our upcoming episode four, which is going to deal with the movie The Battle of the Bulge. And so what the mini is going to be about is the events leading up to the Battle of the Bulge, and that's mainly going to deal with the Western allies through North Africa, Italy, and Europe leading up to the winter offensive of the Germans to the Ardennes, so in North Africa. So we have the Japanese attack on December 7th at Pearl Harbor, and then the day after that, Germany declares war on the United States. Obviously, Britain has been engaged with Germany since 1939 when they invaded Poland and the subsequent conquering of the rest of Western Europe pushing the British back to Dunkirk and the evacuation, and then the Battle of Britain. And after the Battle of Britain, the only real troops that are resisting Germany on the western side are the British in Egypt. And you start seeing, that's when you have Montgomery versus Rommel from Tunis to Alamein, and that back and forth along that North African stretch and a lot of desert fighting, and that area is really only 50, 60 miles wide from the Mediterranean to the start of the Sahara Desert. And so they're in this tight corridor of fighting where if they go too far to the south, their tanks and their vehicles get stuck in the sand, and then obviously go too far north, you hit the Mediterranean. So there's some big back-and-forth swings. We're not going to dig quite into that. That could be a whole episode on its own. But after the Battle of the Atlantic in early through mid-1942, so that the Allies can establish dominance over the water so they can start shipping men and material steadily without worrying about the German attacks, although the U-boat attacks and things like that still continued, it was they established dominance over the Atlantic. And then they could prepare to land troops in either Europe or North Africa. The reason they choose North Africa is it's a easy way to introduce the U.S. troops to fighting without immediately attacking Hitler's Atlantic Wall, which stretches from Norway all the way down to Spain. Also, you've got Montgomery coming from Egypt towards Tunis, pushing Rommel back, and this allows the U.S. forces and some other British forces to land in Morocco and Algiers and then start pushing east in a pincer movement 
and trap Rommel and his Afro Corps in between the two. So that brings us to the first major Allied operation in the European Mediterranean theater, and that is Operation Torch. The landings take place on the 8th of November, 1942. you got three main landing areas. You've got the Western Task Force, you've got the Central Task Force, and you've got the Eastern Task Force. The Western Task Force is landing near Casablanca and taking Vichy-controlled Morocco. And then you've got the Center and Eastern Task Force landing in Algeria, a couple of different spots there. Landings are pretty much unopposed. They're Vichy French forces are manning the beaches. There is some fighting, but the way we think of, like, for, say, the D-Day landings, it's nothing like that. They land pretty much unopposed. The, the Moroccan landing is extremely easy. So now you've got allied U.S. and British forces on the ground in North Africa. This is also the first time you see an allied airborne drop, which is the 509th Battalion, which is kind of a cool unit. They're an independent airborne battalion. They're never attached to any of the major divisions throughout the war, either the 101st, the 82nd, or even the 17th later on in the war. You don't really hear much about them, but it's kind of a cool little a cool little unit. From there, they start moving east towards Tunis. And the U.S. troops are untested in battle, and they are led by a man named General Friedenthal, and they run into all sorts of problems right off the bat. Famously, at the Battle of Kasserine Pass, they are completely overrun and destroyed by Rommel's Africa Corps and are in disarray and retreat. Now, finally, they do form a defensive line and kind of hold that line, but it's a major defeat, and it's the first first battle that the U.S. troops have really been in. And it's really credited to Friedenthal for how this battle went so badly. And he did a bunch of things wrong, but one of them is he used a bunch of his own code and own jargon. I, I think he thinks he's too clever. But he'll say things like, go to A on the map, the city that begins with C. You know, it, it's all this weird code, and, and no one knew how to decipher it. And no one knew how to read it. And it led to a lot of logistical problems, which in turn led to a lot of tactical problems. And they got destroyed. Shortly thereafter, Friedenthal is sacked. And then General Patton is put in command. And they proceed to steadily move east and start retaking land as the British 8th Army is moving west and taking ground as well. The North African campaign is... Essentially over in early May, the German Afrikor surrenders in May 13th. They get a lot of German troops in the surrender. Uh, Rommel is not there. He is recalled back and is not there for the surrender. After Germany's surrender of North Africa, the Allies begin planning the invasion of Sicily. This is to do two things. One, it's to open up all the Mediterranean shipping lanes so the Allies can move men and material not only for themselves in the Mediterranean theater, but they can start shipping supplies to Russia on the Eastern Front, which they're having to do through the North ports, which is, they're, it's cold, the water is treacherous, and so this allows them to have a Southern shipping route to the East to help Russia against Germany on the Eastern Front, as well as 
hoping to keep the Asia Minor countries out of the war, at the very least not supporting Germany, and at the very most on the Allies' side. So Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily, begins on the 9th of July, 1943. There was some contention between the U.S. and British commanders as to how they wanted to invade Sicily. Patton and some of the U.S. commanders wanted to have a broader attack and attack a bunch of points all at once, all across the southern and southwest of the island. The reason they did this is so that they could attack from strong supply bases across the rest of the island toward Messina and push the Germans back that way. The British, especially Montgomery, favored a plan where the British would land on the southeastern side of the island of Sicily, and the Americans would land on the south side of the island, and then they would move up together with the British going along this coastal road, coastal road toward Messina and the Americans covering his flank. And that is the plan that was eventually decided upon. But when they land, the landings go fairly well. There's another airborne landing by the 82nd Airborne, and they establish their beachheads, and then they start moving up. They immediately start running into stiff German resistance. The coastal road that Montgomery and the 8th Army is moving up is thin and narrow, and the terrain that the U.S. is moving along on his left flank is mountainous and hilly, and there's German defense everywhere. It's slow, slow moving. There's there's a point in time where Montgomery could have seized an advantage, but due to his slow moving nature, and if you know anything about Montgomery, he's always the, I need more men, I need more supplies, everything has to be perfect before I can attack. That comes into effect here, and they are not able to exploit the advantage and it becomes a slog over this. The U.S. forces under Patton decide that they're going to head towards the kind of northern area of the island, cut off some German reinforcements, and then begin moving on Messina via a city called Palermo. Patton is wanting to do this from the beginning, and due to the slow nature of their movement, he's authorized to start exploiting that area. Patton's army starts moving through the north, and they start gaining some ground. The British slowly but surely start gaining some ground along the coastal road, and then they run into some major German defense along Mount Etna. And it's this mountain that's kind of on the north, the northeast side of the island, and it dominates the surrounding area, and they get bogged down again. The U.S., although they're moving, they're taking heavy, heavy casualties in this rugged terrain against the German defenders. There's a couple mini amphibious landings that the 3rd Infantry Division does under Lucian Truscott on the northern coast to bypass some of these German defenses, and eventually they break through the German lines and are able to push through to Messina by August 16th. The only problem that the Americans, well, not the only problem, but one problem they run into is that this slow, dogged German defense allows most of the German men and material to get across the Straits of Messina over to mainland Italy. So although the Allies achieve most of their goals, being conquering Sicily, opening up the Mediterranean shipping lanes, they don't destroy or capture the German force that's on Sicily, so they know they're going to have to fight it again whenever they get to mainland Italy. So that brings us to Operation Avalanche, which takes place 
on the 9th of September, 1943. Italy is said by Winston Churchill to be the underbelly of Europe. When you look at Churchill, he's always looking for the easy route, the, the unsuspecting front where they can pierce through a soft salient in the line and then move up into Germany or move up into where, wherever they want. In World War I, he tried this in Gallipoli with the Australian and New Zealand forces against the Turk forces, and it turned into a meat grinder, and it failed miserably. Italy is not going to fail as miserably as Gallipoli, but it is far from the underbelly of Europe and this easy route up into France or Germany. And the U.S. is going to find this out very, very quickly, that Italy is a tough place to fight due to its narrow nature and the spine of mountains that basically runs down the center of the Italian boot. And they're going to have to make their way up this, up the, up the Italian mainland, fighting German defensive line after German defensive line after German defensive line. So we get back to the invasion. Once again, the landings go pretty well. The U.S. land near Salerno which is kind of along the southwestern coast of Italy, and the British land on the toe of the boot to move up, link up with another British landing force that was kind of near the heel, and they're going to go up the eastern flank of Italy, and the U.S. is going to go up the western flank of Italy. Now, they run into some pretty dogged German, German defense very early on after they established the beachheads. This is a delaying action so that the Germans can establish these defensive lines that we were that we were just talking about. But, you know, the famous one being the Gustav line and then later on the Adolf Hitler line. But there's many of them. There's something like 10 defensive lines and various structures and the way the Germans plan it. And the Americans are going to go into a meat grinder when they get to these defensive lines. By October, most of southern Italy is in Allied hands. And they're coming up to the Gustav line, which is the, the famous defensive line in Italy. And it goes from Monte Cassino in the southwest up to the Adriatic coast in the northeast. And they cannot break it from roughly the end of October, early November through January of 1944. The Allies break themselves upon this. There's a massive assault by the 36th Infantry Division that gets destroyed. They are chewed up and spat out, and no territory is gained for the Allies. And this will actually later on be under judicial review for uh, the general, General Mark Clark, who was involved for wasting of men and, and material. Now, we get to January, and the Allies cannot break the Gustav line. So they come up with an idea. They're going to do another amphibious landing on the back side of the Gustav line to help break it and then be able to push up north towards Rome and capture this German army that's along that's defending the Gustav line. So Operation Shingle, better known as the Anzio landings, take place on the 22nd of January. And they take the Germans by complete surprise on this landing. You've got the 3rd Infantry Division, which is reinforced by some British divisions and the 45th Infantry Division of the American Army, and they establish a good, strong beachhead at Anzio. Now, the general who is in charge of this landing is slow-moving. He's not very aggressive. He didn't believe in it from the the operation from the get-go, which is a big red flag. 
and it's slow moving the Anzio perimeter out. He finally begins doing some offensive operations, but by then the Germans have reorganized and they're moving to counterattack the beaches at Anzio. So there is some discussion on whether or not that would have worked, but regardless, he does not extend the perimeter aggressively enough to have any impact on the Gustav line. And with these units that are starting to push out, they start getting attacked by German panzer units and artillery, and they are wiped out or pushed back to essentially the Anzio beachhead that was established within the first 24 hours of the landing. And you have whole units suffering something like 90-95% casualties. There's two ranger battalions that push out and they're trying to capture this one town. They get cut off, they get surrounded, and of the 750 some odd men who are in this ranger battalion, only like seven of them make it back to the U.S. lines. The rest of them are either killed or captured by German units. The beach at Anzio was reclaimed marshland by the Italians. So the Germans undo the dams and reflood the beach and the area surrounding Anzio and put it under siege. And they are pounded by German artillery. There's many German counterattacks. And it turns into a massive, massive meat grinder for the Americans and the British soldiers that are there. Now, during this time, there were conjunction attacks on the city of Monte Cassino. And there were four major attacks on Monte Cassino. The first three all failed miserably. And the men got chewed up by the German defenses. It's extremely rocky. It's extremely mountainous. The Germans have all their weapons sighted in. They're above the attackers. And it goes badly. The first assault is made by the U.S., which we talked about a little bit earlier. The 36th Infantry Division gets destroyed. The second is where the famous bombing of the Abbey takes place. The Abbey overlooking at Monte Cassino, which the U.S. thought the Germans had guns and things like that sighted in, which turned out not to be true. And they bombed and destroyed this beautiful Abbey. The assaults for the second one are done by the British the Gurkhas, the Indians, and New Zealand troops, including the Maori. It doesn't go well for them either. The third assault is led by the New Zealand, the Indians, and the Brits. It fails as well. Finally, the fourth attack, which is coordinated with an Anzio beachhead breakout at the same time, takes place in early May, or excuse me, in late May. And the Anzio Beachhead breakout begins, and it's going to shoot across Italy and try and reach the Adriatic coast and then trap this panzer army behind the Gustav line while the U.S. 5th and 8th Army breaks through the Gustav line, traps them, and they, they capture this entire German army. And then they can proceed towards Rome and the rest of Italy. The American commander receives orders by the British overall commander of forces in Italy to do this. It's called Operation Buffalo. Well, General Mark Clark, which is, a, is another thing that he's criticized for, and it might be the most thing he's criticized for, he's a bit of a glory hound. He ignores these orders and tells General Truscott, who's in charge of the breakout at Anzio, to not try and trap the German army, but to race and capture Rome. So the 4th Battle of Monte Cassino takes place, and they're able to take it. It's basically all rubble at this point, but the main thing is they break the Gustav line, and the German army is now in retreat. And, oh, real quick, 
Shout out to the Polish soldiers. They're the ones who were able to break through the spearhead into Monte Cassino, and they placed a Polish flag up on the hill, which is pretty cool. Now, they break through the line, and the German army is in retreat. They all think that Truscott's Anzio task force is going to be trapping them, but instead, they're headed towards Rome. They capture Rome on the 4th of June, 1944, but this entire German army is able to escape and reform another defensive line north of Rome called the Adolf Hitler line. And there's going to be fighting in Italy all the way up until the end of the war because they let this German army escape. There's, there's fighting in Italy longer than there's fighting in France. And it's all due to Mark Clark's decision that he wanted to capture Rome. He calls all these reporters. It's this big fanfare of capturing. Rome was an unimportant strategic city. The, the Germans weren't even there defending it. It was an open city by that point in time. Mussolini had already been deposed before the invasion of Italy. And they just walk in. And he has all these pictures taken, and he has all these reporters taken, and he wants all this glory. And he's criticized, rightfully so, for his decision to take Rome and not trap the Panzer Army along the Gustav Line. And the funny thing is, this takes place in June 4th, 1944. So only two days before D-Day on the Normandy coast ha happens, and he loses all his glory because D-Day's bigger and more famous and everybody's wants to report about that. And he even complains about that. He's like, they didn't even give me 48 hours to enjoy my, you know, conquering Rome or whatnot. It, he's kind of a, yeah, anyways. So that brings us up to D-Day, which is actually Operation Overlord. The term D-Day comes from the designated day that the invasion is going to happen. So every single one of these invasions has a D-Day. The D in front of the day just reinforces the day. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. So you'll you'll say, you'll hear things in movies or when you read them, they'll say D-Day, H-Hour. And it's basically just to reinforce the day and the time that the invasion is going to take place. So because Operation Overlord is the most famous of all of these invasions, people just refer to it as D-Day, but it actually has a name as all of them do. D-Day takes place June 6th, 1944. In the early hours, you have the U.S. Air and British airborne landings. You got the 101st, the 82nd, and the British landing behind German lines to disrupt, seize bridges, seize towns, all these strategic uh, things that the landing force is going to need at once they get past the beachhead. You've got the U.S. forces landing at Utah and Omaha. You've got the British and Canadians landing at Gold, Juno, and Sword. Plus, you've got the 2nd Ranger Battalion landing at Point Duhok, which is in between Utah and Omaha Beach. Most of the landings on these beaches go fairly well. They The Germans think they're going to attack at the Port of Calais over kind of by Dunkirk, which is a much easier and closer stretch of English Channel from England to France. They come in at Normandy, and yes, there's hard fighting, but generally speaking, most of the beaches are, are, are fairly easy to take as far as just the beachhead is concerned. What we The famous hard fighting that takes place on D-Day is really only at Omaha. Now, there's not to say that there's not hard fighting at the other beaches, but when we think of D-Day and, you know, thousands of men on the beaches and they're pinned down, they're getting destroyed by German machine gun fire, that's at Omaha. And it is like that. It takes them hours and hours. It's 
three waves of men. They're all pinned down on the beach. They finally are starting to break through, and then they start to establish their beachhead. The U.S. at Utah actually land at the wrong beach, so it's even less defended than it would have been if they landed at their intended target, and they begin moving moving in, Utah being on the far right flank of the landing zone. And then you've got the Airborne, the U.S. Airborne landing behind Utah Beach, and you've got the British Airborne landing behind Sword Beach to get some bridges along the Orne River and things of that nature. The Normandy landings are a complete success for the Allies. They begin to move inland, but very quickly they run into the Bocage region of France, which is these massive, massive hedgerows that are unlike anything that the Amer- especially the Americans have ever seen. It's these big, big berms of dirt with massive, massive, thick hedgerows that are essentially impassable. And they get bogged down in this country, and it's slow going. You have the 101st capturing and fighting at the Battle of Carentan, which is a city in Normandy that links the two U.S. beaches together. The 101st takes Carentan, and then they move out into that region, and there's a battle called the Battle of Bloody Gulch, where German panzer reinforcements are coming to Carentan, and the 101st is holding the defensive line, and the panzer army runs directly into them. And their flank is destroyed and a small group of 101st Airborne soldiers are holding this railroad embankment against the Germans. And kind of like an old western where the cavalry comes in to save the day, the U.S. 2nd Armored Division comes in from the flank and hits this German counteroffensive and they're able to push them back. After that, it begins more and more of this slog through the hedgerow country. And the British and the Americans have slow going, especially the British in the north. They're focusing on the city of Caen. And it was supposed to be taken the first day of D-Day. It's not taken until the 21st of July due to the German units and defensive units. Now, there's a lot of criticism that goes to the British army and how slow they move after D-Day. And some of that is warranted. Some of it's true. Montgomery's in command again, so he, you run into the same Montgomery problems that you do everywhere he is. But credit given to the British and the Canadians that are fighting in the north, there's a lot more German units and a lot more German armor in that area. So they're having a hard fight trying to take Khan. The U.S. is in the hedgerow country, and they're having a hard time also moving up the Cotentin Peninsula towards the port of Cherbourg. And there's German defense all along that. By the, by the end of July, they're only like 20 to 25 miles in some places off the Normandy beachhead. It, it, it's not quite as this rapid advance as we kind of think of until later on, and we're about to get to that. But the Normandy campaign lasts from, is a, you know, essentially a month and a half long, and the Allies only get 20, 25 miles into France. The Germans are holding them. They haven't taken Cherbourg. They haven't taken Caen. And the the farthest they get to a big city is St. Lo. And they basically pummel St. Lo to the ground and make it rubble just to be able to take St. Lo. Around this time, General Bradley, who is in command of the U.S. forces in Normandy, comes up with Operation Cobra. Operation Cobra is the Allied breakout of the Normandy region. He's going to start this on the 25th of July. And the British are attacking Caen, 
And he's going to use that because the Germans are moving more of their armored forces up to the FinCon from the British as a kind of the anvil. And then the U.S. forces are going to be the hammer that smashed through. It's led by tons of allied air bombing. And then the U.S. begins to push through heading south towards Brittany. It's initially slow, but they're gaining ground. And around the 28th of July, they break through into the open ground and they just take off, and they're gaining ground at a rapid, rapid pace. At the end of July, on the 1st of August, Patton's 3rd Army is mobilized and put in the field, and he unleashes what's called the U.S. Blitzkrieg across France. He goes through all of Brittany. The Germans launch a massive counteroffensive on the 7th of August, and it's completely smashed by Patton's 3rd Army, and they are starting to take ground rapidly. The Americans head south, and then they begin to wheel around to the east while the British have captured Caen and are wheeling around from the north. And they're going to do a pincer movement around the German forces in that Normandy area. And they're going to try and trap them, what's known as the Falsay Pocket. And the Germans realize this, and they begin to do everything they can to keep that pocket open, that corridor open as long as possible to get as many German troops back on, back out of it before it's closed. They finally, the U.S. and British, finally close the pocket on the 22nd of August, and they capture something like 50,000, 60,000 German prisoners. They destroy, I don't know how much armor, but a lot of Germans do do escape out of it, and they form another defensive line outside of Normandy. Operation Cobra and then Patton's advance through Brittany and around there is the end of the Normandy campaign. Patton's Third Army begins moving through the south very rapidly. Monty's army starts moving through the north very rapidly, and they're into Belgium and in southern France very, very, very quickly. Real quick, we're gonna before we move on to some of the other French and the other campaigns up there in the north, we're going to talk about Operation Dragoon, which a lot of people don't know about. I always find it kind of interesting because it gets left behind, kind of like the Italian campaign. I think it doesn't get as much uh, honor and attention as it should. But Operation Dragoon takes place on the 15th of August, 1944, and it's the Allied invasion of southern France. And they've taken the U.S. 5th Army from Italy, which is the 3rd Infantry Division, the 45th Infantry Division, and the 36th Infantry Division, along with the 509th Airborne Regiment and the 517th Airborne Regiment, those independent airborne regiments that we talked about earlier. And they go and invade southern France and begin pushing towards Germany in, this, in that southern France region. It's essentially unopposed. There's very few German troops there, and they start taking ground very, very early on. One of the main reasons they did Operation Dragoon is to, well, one, to start liberating southern France, and two, to keep German reinforcements from being able to keep the Falsay pocket open and driving on counterattacks into the Normandy operation. Because when they land in southern France, some of the German units that were heading towards Normandy are rerouted to fight these men. Then the Falsay pocket is closed and these Germans realize and they retreat back towards 
towards the German border as well. So they're a, it's a conjunction operation. Its landings themselves are not quite as glorious as D-Day and some of the other ones. So it gets kind of left behind in the history books and things of that nature. But And then there's some historians who criticize it for further implications in the Cold War and things like that. But at the time, I, I think it was um, needed and it did a lot of good for them, for the Allies in France at that time and their war gains. Now, after Operation Dragoon and Patton's blitzkrieg across France and the British advance through northern France, they're starting to get a little stretched thin. The U.S. has captured the port of Cherbourg, but it's in disarray. It was destroyed by the Germans. So the only port for supplies that the Allies have in France is the harbor at Normandy that they built. And it's a temporary one. It, it gets destroyed by some storms in the English Channel. The Allies are trying to get to the port of Antwerp. It also needs repairs. And the port in the Mediterranean that they captured under Operation Dragoon is too far away from England to be able to use it as a reliable port to get supplies and men to the front lines fast enough. So they're beginning to grind to a little bit of a halt. And in turn we get up to Operation Market Garden. This is the brainchild of General Montgomery, Montgomery, excuse me, and his daring plan to get a bridgehead over the Rhine River in Holland so that they can loop around the north and then drop down into Germany that way. Instead of going directly east and running into some massive, massive German defensive lines. It takes place on the 17th of September, 1944, and the rest of the European front is basically put on halt so that all the supplies, fuel, ammunition, and men can be thrown into Operation Market Garden. They're staged on the Belgian border, and they're going to go up this highway through Holland and crossing all of these rivers. There's something like six rivers with bridges that they have to take to be able to get over the Rhine River and then down in Germany. And with the way they're, they're going to do this is they're going to have three airborne divisions drop in, seize these bridges simultaneously, and then the British Armored 30 Corps is going to drive up this highway, securing these locations, and then that way they have a corridor from Belgium over the Rhine River, and then they can proceed into Germany. There's only one highway that's been selected as the route for the British 30 Corps. It's two lanes wide. In some places, it's only one lane. And if you know anything about Holland, it's a lot of re-seized ground from the sea. And so there's all these dikes and hills, and the roads are all raised up. So they can't really go through the fields very well. And once you take a, a spot... It's hard to get the next column past that because the road is so thin. You've also, it's all banking on these airborne divisions, seizing these bridges intact so that the armor can cross and establish the bridgeheads. They run into problems from the get-go. One of the bridges the 101st Airborne is supposed to seize is blown up, and they have to build a Bailey Bridge across it, which put them behind schedule. The 82nd Airborne lands, and instead of going directly for the bridge, they decide that they're going to take 
these heights overlooking the area and secure this high ground before they go and take the bridge, which allows the Germans to put up defenses in that area first. Then you've got the first British airborne landing very far away from their bridge at uh, Arnhem and having to make their way there. They get all split up. Very few men actually reach the bridge and the rest of them are all tied down on the, on the outskirts. The Germans immediately start launching counterattacks against all the positions and it, it fails. I mean, the, the main objective is to get over the Rhine and they do not achieve that. They're, Montgomery and some historians say that this operation was 90% successful. Well, the way it's planned out, if it's 90% successful, it's a 100% failure because their goal is to get over the Rhine and they do not do that. All they did was waste all of these men, all this material, all this fuel on an operation to take some more land in Holland. Now, I get that the people of Holland had a really rough time with German occupation and they're liberating it, but it was a waste a waste of men and material. It didn't work. A lot of men died and the entire operation was supposed to take between like three or four days. They're in Holland until November fighting the Germans and they're never able to get over the bridge at Arnhem. They don't get over into Arnhem until the end of the war. The Canadians finally take Arnhem in like April of 1945 or March of 1945, excuse me, something like that. The 101st, the 82nd, they're there fighting on what's known as the island because Holland has all these estuaries and dams and dikes and things like that. So they're, it's all part of Holland, but some of them, if you look at it on a large scale map, are actually technically little islands. And they're stuck on this island fighting these German counterattacks through November. It is a massive, massive failure. Now, getting into November, the Allied advance is starting. We get to Operation Queen and the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest. And this was a... Uh, the goals of this operation were to breach the Siegfried Line, which is one of the Germans' defensive lines along the German-French border. There's these dams along this area that the Americans are trying to seize, as well as breach the Siegfried Line. So there's this massive aerial bombing campaign to destroy these dams. The men are moving through the Hurtgen Forest, and it is hard, hard fighting. The Germans have strong defenses. It's dense, thickly populated woods, and they have a really hard go of it. And it's another Allied defeat. Their goal was to seize the dams. Their goal was to break through the Siegfried Line. And they don't do either of those things. In, in early December, the Germans are still in control of all of those. And a lot of men, a lot of men died during Operation Queen in the battle for the Hurtgen Forest. They're starting to seize some land in the forest, and the Germans are defending this area tenaciously because on the backside of the forest is the staging area for the Ardennes Offensive, known what we call the Battle of the Bulge. And so they're doing everything they possibly can to hold this area because all of their troops are right there. And so that kind of brings us up to the Battle of the Bulge, which we'll talk about on the main episode. So I hope that this gave a little bit of more context to the overall war in Europe. I'm sure a lot of people already knew a lot about this. We didn't 
dive in super, super deep once again, but it's just kind of to give some high points leading up to the Germans' offensive in the Ardennes in 1944. The winter in 1944 is going to be a very, very harsh one. The Allies don't think that the Germans have the capability to launch a major offensive. They're resting their troops. They're reestablishing their supply lines. They don't think anything is going to happen during the winter, and they're planning their big spring offensive to pierce the Siegfried line, get into Germany, and start the drive towards Berlin. The Germans are doing the same thing, but they're hiding their entire Ardennes army that they're going to use during the Battle of the Bulge. And so we'll get a little bit into that and then into the movie as well. So talking about the movie, we're going to be looking at the 1965 movie, The Battle of the Bulge. I chose this movie because they get a lot of things wrong, and I was looking for a based on history movie where they got a, they got a bunch, bunch, bunch of things wrong. I didn't look before I chose it to see where you can find it and watch it online. So I, my apologies uh, there beforehand, but you can rent it on Amazon Prime and you can rent it on iTunes. So we're going to have to rent it as well. I hope that y'all are able to do that. And in the future, I'll try and pick some movies that are a little bit easier to uh, view. And then we get down the line and, and we'll you know just kind of make do with what we've got. So I hope you enjoyed this Based on History Mini. Don't forget to find us on Instagram at, at Based on History. Follow us, comment, get involved. And don't forget to like and subscribe where you listen to us on any of the podcasting platforms. Leave a review. It really helps us out. And we'll see you next time. Bye.